If you have your Bibles, would you find Revelation chapter 17? Revelation chapter 17 is, uh, is a passage about not a scarlet woman as much as it is about Jesus Christ. And just as a teaching moment, look in verse 14. Verse 14, they will make war on the Lamb, they being the enemies of Christ, led by the Antichrist. They will make war on the Lamb, who is Jesus, and the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Amen. Amen. So it's easy if you're reading through Revelation to say, hey, what's the mark about? What's the, who's the Antichrist? What's going on at the end of time? And miss that this is a revelation about Jesus Christ. So just as a teaching moment. Also, just one more teaching uh, moment before I jump in here to the text. When you read the Bible, and some of you are brand new to the Bible. Um, this is all new for you. You're opening it up and you're wondering, how do I read this? It's not like a novel because it's 66 books. The Bible is made up of 66 books. When you take and begin reading, how many of you read the Bible on a regular basis? You do that on a regular basis? Uh, I believe every day we should have some time in the Word. When you do that, start this way. Start by observation. Uh, that, that is, I'm just trying to see what's here. Uh, are there things repeated? Uh, are there commands I need to follow? Are there warnings I need to heed? Are there, are there some things I don't understand? Just mark those down. That's observation. Um, and we can all do that. Don't stop there. The next step, the next step would be interpretation. What does it mean? What does the text mean? So I want to know what this means, not necessarily what it means to me, what it means. We say it around here like this. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. So what did it mean for John? What did it write? Uh, John wrote Revelation, for instance, and what did it mean for the people there? Because what it meant then is more important than anything, because now, now, now I can bridge that. Now I can see how I can apply this to my life, which is the third thing I want to do. After I do interpretation, then I'm going to application. How do I apply it? I will tell you, uh, I have the gift of exhortation, which means I, I just like to, I want to encourage people. I want you to, to move on and let, let's go to the next step. One of the battles I have to fight and the weakness of that gift is I want to jump to application. Like, let's just jump in. What does this mean? Well, how do we apply it to our life? But we've got to stay and make sure that we understand what God says, because that is key. What God says, as we prayed in staff this morning, is more important then what I say or what we sing, what does God say? Are y'all with me so far? Say amen. All right, so what does God say? That's what we want to get to today. I want to jump into this Revelation 17, and I have entitled it The Scarlet Woman, The Scarlet Woman. There are lots of different uh, titles that pastors have given to this chapter that are much better than my title. Some have called it The Mother and the Monster. Uh, I like Adrian Rogers' title. I think his was the best, Beauty and the Beast. The beauty being the uh, mother here of all false religions. She's outwardly beautiful. Inwardly, she is not. She is grotesque. Outwardly, uh, she's beautiful. And then the beast is the Antichrist who leads a global um, political movement. So here she is, the mother of all false religions, and she's going to govern people through religion. Adrian Rogers was a pastor who gave it this title. Adrian Rogers is in heaven now. He's one of my favorite preachers still to listen to to this day. Um, he was faithful to the Lord till he died. He died uh, of cancer, but faithful all the while. 
And he tells this story uh, in his older life as a pastor about his granddaughters. His granddaughters, whom he said, were all beautiful on the outside and the inside. And one of his granddaughters got married, and she asked him if he would take his Model A, 1929, black and yellow Model A, to the ceremony and drive her and her new husband to their car. And Dr. Rogers said, I'll do that. And so he took his Model A to the wedding, and they put the just married sign on the back and balloons and cans, and the, the, the couple got in the rumble seat, which is on the outside, and he drove them off to their car. He came back, he came back to the church, and his youngest granddaughter in her early 20s said, Granddaddy, can you drive me home in the Model A? He said, yeah, jump in. So they jump in, and they're driving down the freeway, and people are honking and pointing, Truckers are, honk. He's like, what in the world? Then he remembered the just married sign still on the back. (laughs) He said, I know what they were thinking. They're thinking, how did this old geezer get this young, beautiful girl to marry him, right? That, That is a good picture of Revelation 17. The woman here is religion, and she's married to government. And this is a dynamic duo that is a destructive partnership. Anytime a corrupt government gets in bed with a corrupt church, you've got serious problems. When you read Revelation 17, it's like reading today's top stories and yesterday's history. Headlines and history. These two end up together. They partner in order that they might oppress the people of God and oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to note, as we look at this woman, who is a symbol of all false religion, that her religion is the old-time religion of Nimrod, who was in power in Genesis 11, and built a city called Babel, in which a tower was built into the heavens, and that was not a structure to try to reach God, but a structure where people worshipped man instead of the Creator. It is a picture, Babel is a picture of all false religion that takes the attention off the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and shines a spotlight on man. It is now where we see that this happens, that government, government becomes the sovereign. When God is no longer the solution, government is. We see this in Israel's history, for instance. Israel, who has God as their king, decides they don't like the way that they are being led They don't like the way they're being led by God. They look around and they see all the other nations, and all the other nations have an earthly king. And so Israel clamors for a king. They tell God they want to be like all the nations around them. God says, you can have an earthly king, but he's going to take your money and exorbitant taxes. He's going to to draft, this king's going to draft your boys and send them to war, and he's going to amass great treasures on your back. But this is what Israel says, we want to be like the other nations. And so they get a king, and they get a king whom they deserve. They get a king by the name of Saul, who outwardly is powerful, handsome, standing hand and shoulders above other men, but did exactly what God warned Israel would happen. He taxed the people, he sent the boys off to war, and he made himself a lot of money on the backs of the common folk. That's exactly what happened in Israel, and this is exactly what will happen at the end of time. Revelation chapter 17, we read how that there's going to be a time in which religion and politics get in bed together. They are not separated, but they work together in order to do one 
one thing in particular. And I want to remind you, just before we get into this, that this world does not need a separation from the church. Does not need a separation from the church. This corrupt culture we live in needs a straight church that shines a spotlight on the cross so that they can know what it means to truly live. By that, what I mean is, this is not a time for silence. This is a time for us to speak up. I was reading some articles about Jimmy Carter, who is in hospice care right now. The former president of the United States said that he would live his last part of his life trying to correct things that he had done wrong. And that was not standing up for the weak. He said, silence equals violence. Now, I don't have the same ideas, nor philosophy, nor theology as Jimmy Carter. I do agree with him, however, that when we are silent as a church, violence should be the expectation on our culture. And when we're silent and not speaking up in a world that needs Christ, there will be many people who will suffer at the hands of false religious systems. Would you read with me in verse 1, and let's jump into this. Because as we see here, we're going to find that there's an identification of this woman, this scarlet woman. She is sometimes called the scarlet woman. She's called the great prostitute. She is the mother of all false religion. She is the one who will be married to the beast, who is the Antichrist, who is against God and all his children. Number one, notice her persuasion. Verse one. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, who is seated on many waters. She is called the great prostitute because she's used. She's seated on many waters. Many waters indicate that there are a lot of people in which she is persuasive over. She is causing most people to be deceived. No wonder, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And many are led away. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The word few in the Greek is micros. Jesus said, very few people actually find the narrow way. To use Brian's words from the baptismal testimony this morning, there are a lot of people that have Jesus in their head, but never have received him in in their heart. And are going to miss heaven by those inches, just between the head and the heart. Where Jesus is, they would say, well, he's resident in my belief system, but he's not president of my life. He is Lord and he is king. And he has to be submitted to that way. Many, many are persuaded by her. Why? Look in verse 2. Even the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. And with the wine whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. When we read about the sexual immorality that they have, it is a sinful immorality that you need to see in scope. They are, these kings, ones who are, they are accommodating sinful lifestyles. They, 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 are, they, they are rationalizing those things which are wrong and actually calling them right. Even the kings of the earth are involved in sin. And this religion is giving a way to live spiritually and at the same time sinfully. This is why it's so popular. That's why it's so popular. I can believe in God, I can be a spiritual person, and I can do what I want. I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, with whom I want. That's why this religion is so 
powerful. But notice the place that John has to go to see her, verse 3. Verse 3. And the Spirit carried me into the wilderness, and I saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. False religion here is false religion here, seed, seen as seated on a beast. False religion on a beast. The beast is the Antichrist. And this false religion is found in the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Because false religion, religion that does not have Christ at the center, that is not gospel-centric, is always a religion that leads to barrenness, fruitlessness. It leads to the desert. That's exactly what John says to us here. It is a power, powerless religion to deliver people from their real problems. Just this past week in the New York Times, we read how that nearly five out of, excuse me, three out of five, three out of five teenage girls are suffering from sadness, twice the rate of boys, and one in three girls are considering suicide. That's an amazing statistic, and yet not surprising, because any way that's not Christ's way, the narrow way, leads to discouragement, depression, and destruction. Every way. That's why when we read how that, those who are involved in sinful lifestyles of all sorts suffer from mental illnesses or mental health issues, we say we're not surprised. We weren't created to go our own way. We weren't created to do our own thing. We know that mental illness is an issue. And even those who sometimes do the right things the right way suffer. But there is an epidemic of mental illness in our nation, and especially in the West, and the result should not surprise us. When we go our own way, we end up in the wilderness. And what the world says is we have a hope. We have an answer. And for every, every problem, Satan has a pill. Sometimes it's a literal pill. Sometimes it's a philosophy. Sometimes it's a program. Sometimes it's some sort of play. Sometimes it's entertainment. But he will always have a way to capture the mind that needs to be turned to Christ. Our pain can be our gain when it turns us to Christ. In other words, our conviction can help us come to realize we need a cross. But false religion says there's another way. It's an easier way. And it's why men choose false religions, frankly. One man said we choose our religion oftentimes as men the way we choose our furniture. Does it fit my lifestyle? And is it comfortable? The way of the cross is not. It's not comfortable and it's confronting. And this is why we read, even in the New York Times and the Washington Post and other papers this week, that the pathologies that people have, the problems that they have, are only made worse by people like us who actually believe the Bible. Well, Jesus said it this way. I have life, and that more abundantly I'll give you. I'm the source of life, and from your, from your belly shall flow rivers of living water. In Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with the 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Only life, the only real life that we can experience that heals the hurts that we have because of sin is found in Christ. 
Someone said it this way to me this past week, Pastor, I was living far from God and I had such an emptiness in my heart. I was so broken. I was so empty. I was so full of a void. Thank God that in that moment, someone invited me to Hibernia Baptist Church. And coming to church, hearing the gospel, they gave their life to Jesus Christ. And then, you know what he said to me? He said, and now I've been saved all of these years. You know what I've been doing? No, what have you been doing, Mike? I've been going to all the people who I knew were Christians who didn't tell me. And I'm asking them, why didn't you tell me about this? I'm like, wow. We have the answers. The answers to the world's ill, which is sin. And Christ, he's the only cure. This false religion, look in verse 4. Is prosperous. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Look at her outward appearance. She's holding a golden cup, but that cup is full of abominations and purities of her sexual immorality. This woman looks good. She's wealthy, and false religious systems typically are. They're typically very wealthy and after the money at heart. Just about every false religious system loves money somewhere. Many have tried here to try to understand exactly what religion this is and have attached this religious system led by this woman to particular denominations, particular movements. But we read here that she is also the mother of all of these false religions. She is the mother of all these religions. But what we can recognize from her is this. What we can recognize from her is this, that a religious system that is full of secrecy, symbols, special attire, and separating the clergy from the laity with some sort of spiritual aristocracy is going to most likely always be a false religious system. What Jesus did, he did in public. The apostles stood up to preach to say, what Jesus did, he did for all to see. So therefore, just quickly, before I move on, if you are a part of some secret society and you name the name of Jesus, leave that society. Because the church of Jesus Christ is public and in the sunlight. And if you're a part of a religious system that gloats and it is constantly in its all pomp and circumstance with symbols and uh, secrecy and um, dress, I would be very suspect of that particular religious system. Here this woman looks, she looks on the outward as something to be revered, but on the inward, in the inward reality, she is full of wickedness, abominations, impurities, and sexual immorality. To help us further understand her identity, look at verse 5. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery. Now notice it's her forehead. And we see the forehead mentioned several times throughout the book of Revelation, right? We see how the people that follow the beast have the mark of the beast in their forehead and in their right hand. The forehead is the sign of identity. This is why we read how that the children of God have the Lord Jesus' name in our forehead. We have his name written in our forehead. He is our identity. This is a woman now. We can see her identity. It's written in her forehead. I stopped by our special needs class today. And I do that pretty regularly because they always encourage me. I love the special needs group. One of the guys in there, Andy, said, Pastor, you were talking about how, in the first service, how this woman had this name in her forehead and how our identity is found in our forehead. This is what what Andy said, or asked me a question. He said, "Uh, Scott, how did David kill Goliath? I said, with a a slingshot. Where did Goliath strike 
Where did he get struck? I said, oh, in the forehead. Remember did David pray? This is when people know who's God. So I told Andy, I said, I'm going to quote you, Andy. God struck the enemy in the forehead. This enemy has an identity in the forehead that will be struck, but notice the identity, Mystery Babylon the Great. Mystery Babylon tells us where she's from. There's actually a city, Babylon, that existed and has existed throughout the ages. There's an area in Iraq right now known as Babylon, but this is not talking about that particular place because Babylon is a symbol. It always symbolizes in the book of Revelation and throughout the scriptures, it always symbolizes, it always symbolizes opposition to God and the oppression of God's people. Babylon is also a culture. We'll see this next in chapter 18 as we get into that later uh, in the weeks to come, that Babylon is a culture full of idolatry. Idolatry is nothing more, nothing more than going the way that I want to go instead of the way that God has called me to go. Or doing what I want instead of what God has told me. It is doing my own thing, my own way. Idolatry. Immorality is always linked idolatry. This is the culture in which we live in, where we celebrate immorality as if it is something to find our identity in. Sex as something to find our identity in. Our sexual choices as something to find our identity in. No wonder, no wonder when you look at this text, Babylon is a creator, not only of culture, but of all false religion, her offspring of all those who oppose Christ and oppress the people of God. No wonder James, who was the half-brother of Jesus and the pastor at Church of Jerusalem, preaching to his church in his sermon, said this in his sermon, James 4.4, you adulterous people, speaking to his church, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why John says in Revelation 18, come out, church, come out of Babylon. Come out of the culture. Why? As much as I may want to in my flesh, I can never do it. I can never be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. I'm either a friend of God or I'm a friend of the world, but I can't be both. What James was not saying in his sermon, by the way, was that we ought to hate the world. No, he said we ought to love the world. We ought to do good to the world. We ought to care for the world. We ought to share the love of Christ to the world. That's not what he meant. What he meant is, I can't play both sides. I can't come to church on Sunday and sing how much I love Jesus, and then on Monday try to fit in with Babylon. I can't do it. I can't sit at the cafeteria table and go along with Babylon's culture. I can't go along with their philosophy. I can't go along with their ideas. I can't go to, the, to, to work. I can't go to uh, the playground. I can't, I can't go to the ballpark. I, I can't go to the recital and just pretend like I'm, like I'm like everybody else. We've been called out of Babylon to be separate from Babylon so that we might point Babylon to Christ. And we live in Babylonian culture. But when we do that, there should be a certain expectation. Look in verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Religion, in the end, ultimately wars against the truth. This religious system hates what is true, hates 
God's word, hates the authority of scripture. She's effective, this false religious system in the end, effective at calling Christ's kingdom unkind, calling Christians unloving because we are inevitably intolerable of sin. Because of that, hated is the church and the kingdom of God in the end times. But we know, as we said at the end times, those things are happening regularly now. This is why John says, I was filled with great wonder, great astonishment, great, great amazement. Why are you filled with such great amazement? John, you didn't say that when you saw the Antichrist. You're saying you see it when you see this false religious system. Why? Because she persuades so many and she comes against the people of God so vehemently. She is one who hates the truth. Here's what we need to recognize, church. If we follow Christ, there's going to be times of persecution. All who live godly will face persecution. We'll be shunned. Sometimes we'll be ostracized. We won't be invited to certain places. We'll be mocked and laughed at sometimes. And we don't invite that. We don't want that. We don't like that. But it is a reality of who we are in Christ. And the most unloving thing we can do is to try to be friends with this world at the same time being friends with God. We'll never call people to repentance and to the truth by being like them. We've been called out of this world. We were once at war with God, Ephesians 2 says. Romans 5 says we were once at enmity with God. We were warring with God. And we were, we were people of this present age, just like everyone else. But now, but now we're the children of light. Live as children of light. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on Jesus Christ and stand for the truth. Why? There are people who are dying without Christ who are desperate to know what it means to be set free from their sin. And we have been called as the army of God with that message in this world, this Babylon. It won't be easy. It's going to be difficult. But I want you to see how that the whole goal of false religion is to come against the truth of God. Look in verses 7 through 13. I want to quickly talk about this beast and its identification. We talked about this woman. We're going to cover this more next week. But here is the, uh, the identification of the beast. Verse 7, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast and the seven heads and ten horns. The beast basically is the one who is over ten horns or ten kings. He is the one with complete power over a geopolitical system. He is the antichrist. The beast is basically the head of state. He's the head of the state that runs the world, the economic system and now a religious system. He is full of wonders and deceptions. Verse 8, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And then we see how the whole world follows. We've already studied how that this beast, this Antichrist, will be killed and miraculously raised to life. And here we have, again, John iterating the fact that many will be deceived because of this act. Verse 9, this calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There's a lot of speculation that's come out of these verses as to who the Antichrist is. Out of these verses, some have said the Antichrist is no doubt Nero, who leads the Roman Empire, who was leading the Roman Empire, and was from the the capital city that was known as the Seven-Hilled City. There was a festival, the seven mountains in Rome every single year. So there would be those who would say, John's talking about Rome. But it is my conviction 
that John's writing during the time of another emperor known as Domitian. And though Nero was a type of Antichrist, he's not the Antichrist. Some thought Nero was the Antichrist, and John's day called some to come up with this idea that one day Nero would be resurrected back to life and lead an insurrection against God Almighty. None of that, none of that's true. There's other speculations that have been made about this Antichrist and even about the religious systems. There are people who have speculated that this false religious system is the Roman Catholic Church or it's Islam or on it goes. And you've heard me throughout this series talk about what God has said in his word and try to be very clear about what's going to happen in the end and how it ties to today. I listen to a lot of sermons on Revelation. I read a lot of books, a lot of information. I get a lot of material, some of that from you guys. And I listen to people who have preached over the years, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, about what's going to happen at the end of time, only as I'm listening or reading to see how that what they said is now obsolete. What they speculated was just that. I've tried not to do that. But what I want to point your attention to is this. In the end, there will be one leader of this world system that will bring the entire world underneath its control through deception. And he'll use religion to make it happen. So as we continue to read this, there's a reason. Look in verses 12 through 13, and we'll kind of end right here. And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. For what reason? Verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. This whole section has its background in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Daniel tells that there would be a time that one final emperor is going to come like no emperor before, and he's going to lead a coalition against the king of kings and the Lord of lords, or as Daniel calls him, the ancient of days is the Lord Jesus. He's going to lead a coalition against Jesus Christ, who is the ancient of days, and you can't destroy the ancient of days. So in the last three and a half years, as Daniel says, in Daniel chapter 7, there will be this, this battle that will end with one final conflict between Christ and the Antichrist, in which Christ will rule and reign for all of eternity. This is coming. So again, what does this have to do with me now? I want to make one application. I tried to do this in the last service and realized I've got a lot left left in me. I realized that on uh, Thursday. That's why this sermon turned into more than one sermon. And on Wednesday, we're going to cover more. But I want to make this application. Whenever it is that we see any religious system, no matter who they are, know what they are, reject God's word as ultimate authority, you can recognize it is a child of Mother Babylon. It doesn't matter how many crosses or crucifixes or symbols or ideas that they have that come from the Bible. It doesn't matter how much they talk about God or Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what they talk about. If they reject biblical authority, it is not a religion from God. This means then, if we're going to follow Christ faithfully in these days, we must do what saints are encouraged to do in the last days, and that is to reject man 
as the ultimate authority and to trust that Christ indeed is the ultimate authority. There are a lot of tricks and traps that Satan tries to pull. This is President's Day weekend. And I was thinking about so many of our presidents in the past who tied their patriotism to prayer. Who, John Adams, for instance, instituted prayer. And when he prayed and asked the entire nation to pray, he asked the entire nation to confess their sins before God, to contritely turn and repent and trust Jesus Christ. Imagine today if one of the presidents of our nation who put their hand on this holy book actually believed what is said. And they would say, since I'm going to put my hand on this book, I'm going to believe that it's the authority. And therefore, we should not shed innocent blood, unborn, preborn babies. And we believe what God said about creation. And we believe what God said about marriage. We believe, we believe what God said about gender. We believe that God's word is the authority. What if we had people in presidency that believe the word of God? What if we had people in the pew that believe that? I believe it would be far more powerful if we had people in the pew who believe that with all of their heart and lovingly and kindly and compassionately called people to believe the truth by the way in which they taught them, by the way in which they live. The reason that we have so, come so far in America is because we don't have prayer in the classroom and we don't have prayer in the courtroom anymore. And, pro, and, and you know the reason? We don't have prayer in the living room. And it's easy to point our fingers at a world that does not know Jesus Christ and forget judgment begins with the house of God. And sometimes God has used governments and raised them up, Romans 13, to punish evildoers. But 1 Peter 4, judgment begins with the house of God and God allows government agencies to actually purify the church of Jesus Christ. Revival starts, you know where? Revival starts with people who are convinced that what God has said is true and will stand on those promises and will proclaim those promises to people who've yet not known what it means to follow Christ. Revelation wasn't written for us to argue over the second coming of Christ, but to urge us to tell people who've never heard about his first coming about Jesus Christ. We live in Clay County, which is a very conservative area of Florida, especially in relation to the rest of this nation. But don't let that fool you for a moment to think that most of our county is far from God. They are. They are far from God and do not know what it means to truly come to faith in Jesus Christ through repentance of sin and belief on Jesus. And we have, in the pew, have the opportunity to do what God's called us to do in this world, and that is to tell people about Jesus, to be following the commission and sharing our faith with those who don't know. Notice this. The way Satan works in the end is the way that he's working now. He has so many religious systems, so many denominations, so many churches. They have so many trappings, so many trappings of spiritual, Christian even, Symbols and subjects, but are missing the point that salvation comes only when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that's based on the authority of Scripture alone. 
so that we learn through Scripture alone that we are saved by faith alone, by His grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you've given us this text to begin studying, Lord, not only what's going to happen in days to come, but God, what's happening in the day in which we live. Help us in this day to do, God, what you've called us to do, to be your people, to shine the light, not only for people that we work with or go to school with, but God, even in our own home. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to have our, our invitation. I'm going to ask you to respond to the Word of God. And there's a couple ways. Immediately, I'm going to ask you to respond. You can respond any way God's calling you because I don't know what God's doing in your heart. Um, God's speaking to you. But if you're not saved, there's only one way to be saved, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus was talking to his, his disciples. He loved his disciples. And he loved them. And he told them, hey, I am the way. He said, no man gets to God except through me. No man. He wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to know what it was to go to heaven. And it was only through Christ. And the only way to know God is through Jesus. And he wants you to know that too. He wants you to know that too. If you've never been saved, there's only one way. There's not many. Oh, it seems like it. There are a lot of different religions, a lot of different teachings, and a lot of different belief systems out there, but there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to God. That's through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask you this. Does he live in your heart? Have you given your life to him? Do you follow him? If not, you can be saved today. How do I do that, Pastor? If you'll leave your seat, come forward, just say, I'm coming to Christ today. I'm coming to Christ. We'll show you in the Bible how you can be saved. There's others of you in here. You have your one, you know, they need to be saved. And, and you know they need to be saved. And you know who they are. Right now, they're on your heart. And without Christ, they're, they're not going to be okay. They're not going to be okay. They're not going to be okay. We've got to pray that they come to understand the truth, to repent of their sin and believe on Jesus Christ. And so who's your one? Right now, would you just call out to God for your one? Would you just call out to your God for your one? I'm just... I'm just struck. I'm just struck. I'm just struck by this because I was talking to a friend of mine this past week. He goes to another church and he said, uh, my dad's dying. He's in hospice. He's don't have, he doesn't have long. So we were talking about another friend of ours that's not saved. We have a common uh, acquaintance relationship with, not a deep relationship, but friendship with. I said, what about, how's Rob doing? He said, well, you know what? Interesting enough, Rob said, you know, your dad's about to die. He's going to be in a better place. And I looked at Rob and I said, no, my dad's not going to be in a better place. He didn't want anything to do with Christ in this world. He's not going to have anything to do with Christ in the next world. I said, I threw tears that he said that about his dad. But it caused Rob to begin thinking about reality. That without Christ, there really is no hope for eternity in heaven. You and I know people that are without Christ. And the only hope they have is the cross the gospel, and we can give it to them. So I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, during this time, would you pray for your one? Some of you need to get baptized like Brian did today. Maybe you need to get that right or get right with God in other ways. You come right now. We'll meet you here. Just do what God's called you to do.